Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. The next two episodes will explore the golden age of Georgia, when the small kingdoms of the Caucasus were united into a strong and influential regional power. This episode will focus on David the Builder. David became king of Georgia after it had been devastated by years of Turkish pillaging. He ruled over very little territory, as it wasn't safe to set foot in most of his kingdom. But by the time he died, Georgia was nearing the apex of its power, ruling most of the southern Caucasus. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 4, David the Builder, and this is The Almost Forgotten. David was born in the second half of the 11th century as heir to the throne of the Kingdom of Georgia which seemed like a rather dicey role at the time. His father, King George II, was doing his best to keep the Seljuk Turks at bay, and he wasn't altogether successful. George's biggest and most consequential neighbors lay to its west and to its east. To the east was the quickly encroaching Seljuk Empire, a Turkic empire which had, over the previous half-century, starting from Transoxiana, conquered Khorasan and much of Central Asia, before taking the rest of Persia and then Mesopotamia. To Georgia's west was the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, controlling Anatolia, as well as Greece and most of the Balkan Peninsula. The Romans, though, had been weakened by several factors and were not the power they once had been. These two large empires came into conflict, and in 1071, the Turks defeated the Byzantines in a battle at Manzikert, often seen as a turning point in world history. To the south of Byzantium, another declining empire, the Fatimid Caliphate, ruled Egypt and was dealing with internal strife itself. As you move west, various emirates ruled North Africa until you get to Morocco, which was ruled by the Almoravid Empire, which also ruled southern Spain, and lands further south down the coast of Africa. To their south, the Almoravids came into conflict with the once mighty Ghana Empire, although by the end of the century, it had reduced Ghana's power significantly. The Kanem Empire ruled parts of Central Africa, and to their east, Makuria and Elodia ruled Nubia. To the north of the Almoravids, the Spanish kingdoms of Granada, Leon, Castile, and Navarre were often fighting against each other as much as their Muslim neighbors, and the legendary El Cid did both through the late 11th century. The Kingdom of France under Philip I was moderately growing in power, during the early Capetian dynasty. And of course, the Duke of Normandy went ahead and conquered England in 1066. Norway held significant lands in the northern and western British Isles, and was also the strongest of the Scandinavian kingdoms, which included Denmark and Sweden. The Holy Roman Empire ruled from the north half of Italy, up through the Kingdom of Arles, through Germany and Bohemia, up to the Kingdom of Denmark. It was ruled by the Salian dynasty, 
and was preoccupied by the investiture controversy. Neither the Duchy of Poland nor the Kingdom of Hungary were very powerful in the second half of the century, and to their east, the Kievan Rus were a collection of disunited principalities, with Kiev only nominally in charge. The Kipchaks, or Kumans, ruled the steppe to the east of them, interacting with the Rus as well as Georgia to their south. Further east, the steppe was ruled by various disunited khanates. The Liao Empire ruled what is today northern China and parts of Mongolia, Korea, and eastern Russia, while the Song Dynasty ruled most of the rest of today's China. The Khmer Empire was growing in power in Southeast Asia, Angkor Wat would be built in the early 12th century, and the Pagan Empire was also a well-established and growing state in the region, in what is today's Myanmar. India was disunited with many kingdoms, including the Chola dynasty in the south, which had conquered Srivijaya in today's Indonesia. Srivijaya itself was regaining self-rule, but never truly recovered from the Chola invasion. Further, much further east, the Wari Empire was collapsing, making way for the Cusco and Aymara kingdoms in Peru. The Toltecs were the biggest power in central Mexico, while the Maya were in a confederation known as the League of Mayapan. And to the north, Cahokia, the great city of the Middle Mississippian culture, was near its apex. Okay, so, Georgia. Let's start with geography, and a little pre-David the Builder history. Mostly, we are talking about where the Republic of Georgia is located today, that small country in the Caucasus, in between the Black and Caspian Seas, as well as the surrounding areas. The west coast, along the Black Sea, is a region that was once called Colchis by the Greeks. It was incorporated into the empire of Mithridates the Great, and then by the Roman Empire. By David's day, it was known as Lazica, or Agrisi. And to further complicate things, eventually Abkhazia, a region in the northwest, ruled over Lazica in what is sometimes called the Kingdom of Abkhazia. I'll do my best to use all the different names and confuse you thoroughly. Iberia, from a Phoenician word that was used to describe faraway places, like the peninsula that is now home to Spain and Portugal, is in the middle of Georgia. Mountain ranges separate Iberia from Lazica, and the city of Tbilisi, today's capital of Georgia, sits in Iberia, pretty much midway between the Caspian and Black Seas. Iberia and Colchis were the main kingdoms of Georgian antiquity, and they were populated by mostly the Kartavellians, that is to say, people who spoke Kartavellian languages. Georgian is a Kartavellian language, so Kartavellians were Georgians before they were called Georgians, and Iberia is also known as Kartli, especially after antiquity, Kartli just being a term for the country where the Kartavellians live. Iberia was at times independent and sometimes allied with Rome, but usually found itself aligned with Persia out of necessity. The Sassanids were a powerful force during much of the time that the kingdom of Iberia was around, so let's just say it was in their best interest at times to be aligned with them, often as a vassal state. Lazica, west of a mountain range, was almost always allied with the Romans, usually as a vassal, and keeping it looking towards the west. Persia and Rome often fought each other over the region, Rome really being the eastern Roman, then the Byzantine empires, based on the other side of the Black Sea in Constantinople. The emperors Justinian and Khusro fought the Lazic War for two decades over the region, devastating it, 
And this wasn't the only time armies from larger states ran roughshod over Transcaucasia. To the north of Lazica and Kartli lay Ossetia, and to the east, on the Caspian side, was Caucasian Albania, later known as Shirvan, roughly equivalent to where northern Azerbaijan is today. To the south was Armenia, which was once a major power in the region, and to the southwest, pushing into Anatolia, was the region of Tau Klarjeti, which was often ruled by Iberia, or Iberia was ruled from there, depending on the situation. By the 6th century, Georgia was devoutly Christian, and under the Byzantine emperor Heraclius, Iberia became a vassal to Constantinople. This pulled together the two main Georgian kingdoms under one state, but they were still individual vassal states, so let's not get too excited. The Arab conquest reached the area in the 7th century, and the Georgians fought together with the Byzantines in defeat. Vassalage under the caliphate, though, was relatively benign for Iberia when it surrendered relatively early, rather than trying to put up a protracted resistance. Iberia once again became the battleground for two larger powers before the end of the century, and this time the Arabs settled in with a bit more presence. Of note, they took Tbilisi and established it as a major Muslim trade hub. And they took most of Lazica as well, although the important black seaports remained Byzantine holdings. Next, there were wars between the Caliphate and the Khazar Khaganate on the steppe north of the Caucasus that were fought, you guessed it, over Georgia. In the end, the Khazars held onto their territory in the North Caucasus, and the Arabs were stopped in Iberia, up the Caspian coast as far as the city of Derbent, and as usual, the Georgian lands were devastated. One side effect of the increased Arab presence specifically turning Tbilisi into the capital of an emirate, was to move the center of Kartli, or Georgian power, depleted of resources, with a local Arab representative now in control of Iberia, Kartli sort of moved away from the areas under caliphate control. Their fortunes improved as the caliphate was plunged into civil war in the 9th century. According to Donald Rayfield in his book Edge of Empires, A History of Georgia, quote, politically, Kartli had retreated southwest to Tau Klarjeti, where a new dynasty, the Bagratids, was expanding. The Tbilisi Emirate was now a Muslim trading center, second in the Caucasus only to Derbent, and the emirs, spending taxes they no longer transferred to Baghdad, protected from the caliphate by surrounding Christian states, asserted their independence, unquote. The Bagratid dynasty would lead Georgia's unification, but not until the turn of the millennium. By that time, not only was the Arab presence weakened enough to allow some amount of room for Kartli to grow, but so too did the Western situation help. Byzantium was weakened by iconoclasm and a host of other issues that kept it from asserting rule over Lazica. The kingdom of Abkhazia was able to gain independence and rule over most of the coastal region. Abkhazia was the most powerful Georgian entity, and although it did not have direct control over the whole region, it was working towards just that. However, they weren't the only ones there. To the east of Tbilisi, first the kingdom of Hereti, then the kingdom of Kaketia, ruled over the lands of Caucasian Albania. And Tau Klarjeti, west of Tbilisi, south of the Lazica Abkhazia region, was the cultural heart of Georgia. Despite Abkhazia's expansion, 
Tau Clargetti began to grow in power as well, serving the Byzantines and building religious sites which would help define Georgia's spiritual culture. The Byzantine alliance almost proved disastrous, as the Bagratids had to choose sides in various civil wars, but giving a little land to the empire helped ease any tensions that developed when they bet on the wrong horse. In the late 10th century, the childless David III, who was the Duke of Tau Clargetti, and probably the most powerful man in the region, adopted his cousin Bagrat. Bagrat not only descended from Iberian royalty on his father's side, he was also part of the Abkhazian royal family on his mother's side. And lo and behold, the king of Abkhazia, as well as that king's older brother and predecessor, were also childless. So Bagrat was crowned as heir there as well, and actually took the throne in Abkhazia first. Bagrat became the Duke of Tau Clargeti next, and when his own father died, the king of Kartli. The combination of those two positions again gave the king power, and when you throw in the Abkhazia crown, suddenly most of Georgia was united under one person. But not all. Kakheti to the east was still independent, and of course there was the emirate of Tbilisi. Regardless of a few missing pieces, the kingdom that Bagrat handed down to his own son in 1014 when he died was united and independent. But it wasn't yet strong, and when his heir died, Georgia remained technically united, but its power again devolved to the local lords. This left it vulnerable to outsiders. A new threat appeared in the latter half of the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks. A few incursions were made in the 1060s, but King George II, David's father, crowned one year after the Turks defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert, faced a constant fight. George was given the title of Caesar by the Romans and tasked with helping defend their eastern frontier as an ally. At first, he did okay at holding back the Turks, until they realized that Byzantium could do little against them. So, rather than try to take Constantinople, they figured they could just take out Georgia. King George was unable to stop the onslaught as they conquered most of the region. They raided for several years. Georgia was devastated, again, this time in a period known as the Great Turkish Invasion. People fled to the mountains. The fields lay fallow and this contributed to the suffering. Finally, George agreed to become a vassal and pay tribute, but the Turkish raids didn't stop. He lost most of the kingdom's territory and retreated to the Black Sea coastal regions of Lazica and Abkhazia. It was enough humiliation for all of the leading bishops and magnates of Georgia, who forced King George to abdicate in favor of his energetic young son, David. This new king, David, is known as David the Builder in English but a more accurate translation of his Georgian sobriquet would be to call him David the Rebuilder. He was young when he became king in 1089, only 16 years old. Initially the king of a rump state on the Black Sea, his first task was rebuilding Georgia. He started by buying off the Turks. Basically, he paid them enough so that their sultan realized if he let his men raid the area, it might cost him some scratch. So while it might not have made David's accountants very happy, he kept his people from, you know, the whole rape and pillage thing. And he didn't have any accountants. What this allowed, and this was really important, is for people to come out of hiding. Literally, many of the Cartavellians had fled to the mountains, and this brought them back out, knowing that the raiding was over. 
It didn't hurt that at the same time the Seljuks were dealing with internal issues. With free reign again in his own lands, as meager as they might be, David began to reassert his authority. This included with his vassal lords, and that included the traditional cartly land of Iberia. He tussled with the powerful Liparit family, who ruled an Iberian fortress and the surrounding lands, and eventually chased their duke into exile in Constantinople. According to Rayfield, David essentially, quote, instilled into feudal lords the notion that all land belonged to the crown, and that they held their fiefs only if they served the king loyally, unquote. He worked to reduce the power of local petty kings and princes in order to create a more powerful Georgian kingdom. He appointed governors who would do what he asked to lead these localities, which went a long way toward unifying the kingdom. According to Ronald Grigor Suni in his book, The Making of the Georgian Nation, quote, the rebuilder replaced the dynastic aristocrats who had hereditary claims on provincial holdings with a service nobility dependent on the king, unquote. But in order to really improve his kingdom situation, he needed to shake off his vassalage to the Seljuk Empire. An opportunity presented itself in the form of the First Crusade. The Franks marched through Anatolia and reached Antioch in 1097, a major distraction for the Turks. The year after that, there was a serious revolt in the Seljuk Empire, and a protracted civil war followed. These events were quite fortuitous to David, who decided in 1099 that maybe he didn't need to write his annual check to the old sultan. That year, he declined to pay tribute to them, which is another way of saying he revolted against his imperial overlords. And he wasn't just sitting around waiting for them to come march in and attack. He was actively consolidating his power at home, in preparation for the coming conflict. He didn't keep that unused tribute money in the bank for long. Instead, he used it to raise an army. He created a royal guard of 5,000 soldiers, and their loyalty lay, as it always seems to in these situations, with the guy who signed the checks, King David. A decade into the 12th century, his standing army, including, but not at all limited to that royal guard, was probably around 40,000 men. But back to the turn of the century. He turned to the nearby region of Hereti Kakheti to the east. Technically a Seljuk vassal, they were far enough afield to be a vassal kingdom with local royalty. This really began his war against his Seljuk overlords. David was successful in battle initially in 1103, and Kakheti's young, newly minted king was deposed by his vassals and handed over to David. But some nobles remained opposed, and they enlisted the help of the Atabeg of Ganza in today's Azerbaijan. Atabeg is the Turkish equivalent of governor, so he was the Seljuk authority in the region. In 1105, David found himself squaring off not just against the Atabeg of Ganza and those Kakedian lords, but a large army that the Seljuk sultan decided to send. Well, the stories say it was large. We don't really know. And the sultan was pretty preoccupied at the time, so... Well, it doesn't matter. David fought in the battle himself, and is said to have lost three horses from under him before he was finally able to defeat the enemy. A famous, if somewhat kind of gross, story emerges from the battle. David fought so hard that when it was over and his armor was removed, blood poured out. Everyone was terrified that their king was seriously wounded, but they soon realized it was the blood of his slain enemies. Yuck. 
Anyway, with this victory, David was able to incorporate Kakedia into his kingdom. This was a region that had quickly submitted to the Turks. Relations were peaceful with them, so people there hadn't fled into the mountains. The inhabitants had continued to farm and lived relatively normal lives. In other words, compared to the rest of Georgia, it was rich. David invited foreigners into his growing kingdom. Armenians in particular, who were in lands that were more tightly controlled by the Seljuks, fled to David's kingdom in order to enjoy some amount of freedom from, and help to fight against, the Turks. He also married a princess named Gorandukti, who was the daughter of the Khan of the Kipchaks, a nomadic tribe from the northern Caucasus. They had been defeated by the Kievan Rus, and 40,000 or so of them made their way into Georgia as David's allies. They were nomads, after all. They would fight alongside him for much of his reign. To his west lay the Roman Empire, but Byzantium was in a relatively weakened state when he came to the throne, having been crushed by the Turks at Manzikert in 1071. But make no mistake, they were still a relatively powerful force, and David allied with them, preferring to focus his expansion efforts on enemies to the east and south, rather than potential friends to the west. And it's worth noting that those powerful friends to the west were Christians like David, and those enemies to the south and east were Muslim. But soon he notes this was not a religious war, like the one the Latin Christians were conducting to his south on the shores of the Mediterranean. Make no mistake, there were religious animosities, and the differences were noted at the time. But the empire that was trying to lord over him was the Seljuk Empire, not the Byzantine Empire. David saw this as a war of independence, not a crusade. The Cambridge histories refer to the conquests of David as the Georgian Crusade, but this does not appear to be how it was considered at the time, and not how David approached the situation, so it's not really a fitting name. So, on to David's war of independence and expansion. Part of that expansion suggests this was anything but a crusade, as he took the Ossetian kingdom into his own. Ossetia was the land to the north, part of what was once Alania, that is, the kingdom of the Alans, and the people may have been descended from these Iranian nomads. This may have been done in part not simply to expand his territories, but to allow the Kipchaks, who were not necessarily traditional allies of the Ossetians, the possibility of passing through the territory peacefully. This didn't just take military prowess, it took diplomacy. Not only did he reconcile the Ossetians and the Kipchaks, he placated the Kievan Rus. They, of course, were concerned he was giving shelter to their enemies, the Kipchaks. But David was able to convince them that he was, as Rayfield writes, removing their enemy, not harboring them. And some evidence suggests that the Grand Prince of the Rus actually helped escort the Kipchaks into Georgia. Further power of diplomacy was displayed in 1106 when David made an alliance with the kingdom of Shirvan in the region that was once known as Caucasian Albania by marrying his daughter to their crown prince. This secured his eastern border with a Persian-influenced Muslim state as a close friend. He spent the decade of the 1110s with a series of conquests and military victories. His conquest of Kakedia had brought that region into his kingdom, and he began to conquer more small states, mostly Seljuk vassals. In 1110, he had a series of victories which brought Samshvildi and Lower Iberia into his kingdom. Samshvildi was a fortress town that was considered one of the cultural centers of Kartli, so capturing it was important. 
even if its strategic value was limited. He then captured Rustavi, an ancient town that actually had more strategic value than sentimental. After taking Rustavi, David basically had Tbilisi completely surrounded. David continued fighting the Seljuks throughout the decade, and while he didn't necessarily have massive victories between two large armies, he kept winning, and they were never able to get a foothold in his lands. This included his familial holdings in Tau, where he was able to defeat Turkish advances. By that time, he had been able to demand tribute from Tbilisi, the modern capital of Georgia, which was at the time a very prosperous and mostly Muslim city. It had been conquered 400 years earlier and had remained under Muslim control that whole time. Local leaders in Tbilisi and several other prosperous and predominantly Muslim cities begged the Seljuks for help. Sultan Mahmud gathered a large army to come up and teach the rebellious vassal a lesson or two. Even David's son-in-law, the Shah of Shirvan, the one he thought was his eastern Muslim ally, instead allied with a massive Seljuk force. David, though, gathered his own army, including his reformed and strengthened Georgian force, his Kipchak allies, Armenians, and even a few hundred Franks, that is, former crusaders who had wandered north rather than back west. In August of 1121, near the city of Didgori, the two forces met. David had something like 55,000 men. The Seljuks had significantly more. While there are claims that they had half a million, which are probably not actually possible, what's clear from all the sources is that the Seljuks brought forth a massive force. David engaged with the Seljuks before they could reach Tbilisi and link up with even more allies. According to Rayfield, quote, two acts of utter ruthlessness ensured David's victory. First, he blocked the gorge with trees and boulders to stop his own men retreating. Second, he sent to Seljuk headquarters 200 heavily armed cavalrymen pretending to be deserters. As soon as the Seljuks received these men, the latter began to massacre the Muslim leaders, demoralizing their whole army, unquote. These cavalrymen may have been Kipchaks who, looking like deserters, were received by the Turkish army. They then proceeded to attack and were apparently successful at taking out a significant number of Turkish leaders. As this was happening, David sent his vanguard into attack. This frontal assault, as the Seljuk leadership was in disarray, was devastating. When David ordered the rest of the army to charge in, the Kipchaks on one wing and his son leading the other, the Seljuks began to flee. The battle was over in three hours. The Turks were routed. This victory cemented Georgian independence from the Turks and is currently still celebrated in the country. After Didgori, David's next great victory came at the expense of Tbilisi, which he besieged and captured the following year. David was not merciful to the leaders of the resistance, but he spared the population. The predominantly Muslim city remained so for many years, with official religious toleration instituted by the king, and, according to Rayfield at least, the taxation favored the non-Christians for many years, which is an indicator of David's practicality, or at least his understanding of how to keep people from rebelling. He moved his capital to this cosmopolitan city, and the move to Tbilisi is often considered the start of Georgia's golden age. Mixing the surging regional power with the rich multi-ethnic city as its capital fostered significant literary and philosophical growth and led to some of the greatest advances in Georgian culture. In 1123 and 1124, 
David conquered the region of Shervan to the east. While his son-in-law seems to have been on his side this time, the Seljuks came in and took it by force, and David was able to take it back. He made his way all the way to the Caspian Sea in the city of Derbent. His kingdom now literally stretched from sea to sea, but he wasn't done. He was asked by the people of Ani, in northern Armenia, to come in and take charge. He did, sending the Seljuk governor home and incorporating those lands into his own. He had united a kingdom, what we would think of as Georgia. He created Sakartvelo, the land of the Kartavelians, and built an empire based on it. Soon he writes, quote, In the last year of his reign, David the Rebuilder ruled over a multinational empire of Abkhazians, Georgians, Armenians, and various Muslim peoples, extending from the Black Sea and the Caucasus south to Greater Armenia and east to the Caspian, unquote. But David was more than just a conqueror and a unifier of the Georgian people, as this would suggest. He united Georgia without pushing the other inhabitants out. This perhaps was part of what led to the flourishing of Georgian culture that began during his reign. He was well-educated, for a king of the time at least. He was known to take books with him when he went on campaign. He also fostered the education of his people. He founded the Galati Monastery outside his capital of Kutaisi. This was before he captured Tbilisi. And he didn't just build a typical monastery, he built it as an academy, which taught not just religious studies, but also mathematics, sciences like astronomy, and philosophy. Music, too. Classics were translated there during George's Golden Age, and many scholars from Constantinople ended up there. And this wasn't the only academy he had constructed. Of course, the man we call David the Builder worked to improve the infrastructure of his kingdom, building roads and bridges. No small step for a land that, for years, had been devastated with raids and had been significantly hampered economically. King David IV died in 1125, the king of a large, united Georgia. While it was still small compared to neighbors like Byzantium and the Seljuks, it was able to rule independently over the disparate group of people in Iberia, and really, the first fully united Cartavelian kingdom. But it was more than simply gaining lands. David transformed his kingdom. According to Cyril Tumanov, quote, Georgia was transformed into a powerful military pan-Caucasian empire stretching from sea to sea, commanding vassal kingdoms and enjoying the zenith of culture and prosperity. This success was grounded in the redominance of the crown over the dynasts weakened by further feudalization, unquote. One strong indication of Georgia's situation was its relationship with the Eastern Roman Empire. Long allied, the Georgian kings were always given some sort of title by Byzantium, showing both their allegiance and their subservience. David was the last Georgian king with any Byzantine title. After him, Georgia was just too powerful for it to make sense. David the Builder created a kingdom out of a collection of closely related groups, and he drove out their overlords to create a large, powerful, and independent Georgian kingdom. According to Rayfield, quote, No Georgian ruler ever equaled the achievements of David. Reigning from 1089 to 1125, he reunited the kingdom and expelled all invaders, created a flourishing civil administration, army, legal system, church, feudal hierarchy, and secular culture and made Georgia, for the next century, the regional power. Exceptionally intelligent, a linguist and a scholar, decisive, self-critical, creative, and above all, able to perceive windows of opportunity, David transformed the demoralized rump state he had inherited.
unquote. David ushered in a golden age for the kingdom of Georgia after centuries of disunity and foreign domination. Next episode, we will follow Georgia's golden age to the next great ruler of the kingdom and to its eventual downfall. Thanks for listening.